The following is a presentation of the Speed Sport Podcast Network. This is the premier podcast for late model dirt track racing. This is Forward Bike. From the Speed Sport Podcast Studios, powered by My Race Pass, here's your host, Kyle Armstrong. Welcome back to another edition of the Forward Bike Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Armstrong, here again with Adam Logan. And uh, we went and seen a little bit of racing this weekend. Yeah, we took a little trip on Saturday up to, uh, what is it, with Rural Retreat, Rural Virginia. Retreat, Virginia. Uh, went and saw the old Ray Cook Southern National race up there on Saturday. That was my first trip to that place. Never been there. What would you rate it, 1 to 10? 1 to 10, I'd do it a 7. 7? Seven. 7. It was, it was a pretty good race. Yeah, I'm about right there, too. The only... The only downfall I saw all weekend was the concession stand. They could do a little bit of a better job in that department, but the but the racetrack was in great shape. It had a, it was an excellent race, and uh, I love seeing seeing those cars go around that place. And it's it's fast. It's a big old joint. I, I mean, I've I've seen races on you know on on the internet and stuff of that place, but when you finally get there and just go watch hot laps down the infield or whatever, it's like God dang, they are. It's a big old joint. So, hauling the mail. Ain't they it? are hauling the mail down in them corners. But, yeah, it was a pretty good race. They got some decent, you know, really good cars following that series. So, it was, like I said, it was a good race. Dale McDowell picked up the win. Um, good to see Dale win that race, too. He was methodically just started started back there in about eighth or ninth. And I kind of kept an eye on him all night. And he was just picking them up as they were, as they were falling out or – or, or, you know, moving through there. And once he took the lead, he was he, he was, was the gone. dominant car. He pulled away with about 20 to go there, and he checked out. And uh, that's why he's the man. You know, he, he put it on him. A lot of other racing all over the country. That was just the one out of many that we attended. But Yeah, I had a uh, – We saw Johnny Scott win the Lucas Oil race yeah, at Dallas, Diamond, Diamond Nationals. And he won that one. Let's see. Who, let's see the, who won the night before? Hudson O'Neill, right? Hudson won two nights in a row, I-70 and then Tri-City. Um, let's see. What else? What happened this weekend? World of Outlaw was up in North Dakota and Wisconsin. Um, Shane Clinton picked up a, a win up at uh, Grand Forks. And then uh, Mike Marler picked up at Menominee. So. Yeah, I watched that race last night at Red Cedar Speedway. That was a pretty good little race up there. That's a... That's a Pretty little racy little joint. I went up there. I used to, when I was living up in Wisconsin. They always had a the, the Punky Manor, uh, their end of the year special, and and always get a good car count for that. And that that tracks um, it's it's definitely unique the way you have to get around that joint. Like the, the corners are real wide and um, long corners, so it's a definitely a little tricky place to get a hold of. But Mikey was uh, he had the car on point that night and. Led all but five laps and got the W. You didn't, I don't think, did you see what happened there with uh, Jimmy Mars and Shane Clanton in the middle of that race? I did not see that. I heard, I saw some rumblings about Jimmy, that. Jimmy Mars was driving around the top, was getting ready to pass him. And of course, Shane Clanton come up off the bottom and door slammed him. And you could tell that Jimmy Mars was pretty aggravated about it. They went under caution. They didn't really show it, but the announcer said something about it. He showed his displeasure. So I didn't. <laughs> get to see what happened there but i could just tell just knowing jimmy i'm sure he was none too happy i'm sure he that. probably swerved at him told, yeah. him told him he was number one yeah so about like that uh was it the the race up at richmond uh between zach dome and and uh 
what was it Josh Putnam? <laughs> the only uh, thing I saw from that was Zach Dome's Facebook. I post. saw that it was he, pretty colorful. He, he was he showed his displeasure on Facebook, and I watched the race. If you want to hear that, if you want to read that for yourself, yeah, just, go look it up. Yeah, I mean, we're look, not gonna. Yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm, we're not gonna say it, but um, it was. I watched it. It was one of those racing deals. Racing hard. That place is. Uh, it's very bottom dominant, and everybody was fighting for the bottom. I think they both kind of. You want my opinion? They're both at fault. One lap, somebody leaned on somebody else. The next lap, he took care of it. And the next next thing you know, they're parking race cars on top of each other and shooting the middle finger at each other. So, yeah, Jonathan Davenport and Chris Madden shared a couple of XR wins there at Stewart, Iowa earlier in the week. Twenty thousand to win a piece. So they're still they're still the top of the game. And of course. A lot of other racing went on this week, but this coming week, uh, the I-80 Nationals is coming up again, and uh, sadly, it'll be the last it's one. It'll be the last one. So. That's what. Yeah, that's. It's. I think they're gonna have a good car count. Just, cause, I mean, that place is so racy. I mean, it always puts on a good race for that. You know, well, eighty laps. It's not a hundred lap, but that place is huge. But um, one of the hottest places in America. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it's gonna be good. Fifty three thousand to win. Hot joint. Fifty three thousand to win. Fifty three hundred to start. One of the biggest purses all year. Yes. Maybe aside from the million and the dream, but it's gonna be a. It's gonna be a good. Should race. be pretty good. Yeah, and like I said, the, it's, it's sad that that track shutting down after this year, but hopefully, fingers crossed, somebody comes in there and, and scoops it up because that's a like I said that's a real racy joint. Always puts on good racing. Yeah, no doubt. I'm already looking forward to next week. I'm if all things go right, fingers crossed and T's crossed and I's dotted, I should be on my way to Fairbury for the for the PDC for the second year in a row. So Hashtag Falls. Hashtag Falls. Hashtag Falls. Gonna go see what that's about. Again, you know, I got to go up there last year and really enjoyed it. I didn't feel like I got to take it all in enough, so I just have to go try it again and like a well, mini Eldora. That plays that that whole town. It's unbelievable. It's, it's crazy. That old town shuts down for that race. I had to go see it to believe it last time, and now I've got to go see it again to believe if I've seen it, or just, if that makes sense. But it, it's it's incredible. I'm looking forward to that trip. That track, I mean, and it's another one. I mean, it's a possible hundred thousand to win too. Did you know that? No. Every so it's fifty thousand to win, and then it's a I think it's five hundred dollars a lap leader bonus. So really? every lap you lead, it's five hundred dollars. If you lead every lap, it's a hundred. Thousand dollars. I need to get. A, I need to get a race car. Pretty incredible. We just need to get a race car. They're just paying all the money. I mean, they're year. paying all the money. I mean, JD. I mean, he makes it look easy, right? Mm-hmm. You know how to work on it. I'll yeah. drive the rig. We got to find us a driver. I don't think my driving ability will be. Yeah. We'll just be car owners. We'll figure out. We'll figure out something. Ben Watkins, that'd be a good driver. <laughs> yeah. Where's he? I. He raced at Fayetteville this week. He probably did. I didn't see. I didn't see. I didn't. What was that? The Clash race? There's so many I'm scrolling through here to find it. Dustin Mitchell won that Carolina Clash race, by the way. Yeah, Ben Watkins was there. He finished fifth. Moran so, picked anyway. up the, the birthday race at uh, Oakshade. There's so many races in this deal. It's hard to. It's so hard to. Keep right track now, of them all. right now you got summer nationals going on. You got Ray Cook's deal picked, you know, started up this weekend. So for like the next week or two, you don't have racing every night. Lucas races tomorrow night up at Houston. Then they got you know three days at at I eighty. 
it's just that, and it, we're well, we're coming up on money month. Hell, it's been money year, but <laughs> it's been money year. I but usually, usually about this time it kicks off it from kicks August off. to September. But got, now it's you got Fairbury paying fifty. The next week, Cedar Lake plays fifty. Then they go to North South well, One Hundred for seventy five. Seventy five. And the week after that, they go to Batesville for forty. We really should have had a race team starting out going into this year. I think it'd have been all right. <laughs> then the week after Batesville, they go to Port Royal for another fifty. We oh just, my god! We just had a couple of million. <laughs> so, a couple million we end up. And with. if we could get Dale McDowell to drive our car, we'd be in. Good That's shape. what we need to get Dale yeah. McDowell. He don't tear nothing up, and he no. usually brings home the win. Yeah, he's pretty smooth. He's a pretty smooth little driver. So, so anyway. but yeah. So what? Uh, what we got? You going anywhere this weekend? Man, I don't think I'm gonna go to any races this weekend. I've got a concert on my calendar this weekend to go see uh, Tedeschi Trucks Band on Saturday night, and I'm gonna go do that. And uh, like I said, get prepared, get my suitcase ready for for that trip to Illinois next week. Taking the camper? No, it'd be a long haul pulling the camper, but me and. Uh, me and the boys in Dirty Grass Soul, we're going to hitch up to the old trailer and take it up there. And they're playing a gig there on Thursday night. And uh, and I'm band a band manager here. Yeah, I'm going to sell their T-shirts for them and stuff, as far as I know, and and all that, and uh, and and be there all weekend for the race. So I'm looking forward to it for sure. Yeah, roadie. Yeah, sorta. Whatever, whatever works. Whatever gets whatever gets me up. <laughs> whatever the road. gets you up there. Yeah, that's all that matters. So. All right. Well, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what else I've got. We're going to try to. We're going to take a quick break here, and we'll come back on the other side and try to call our special guest for this week and uh, and uh, see if we can get him on here. This is the Forward Bike Podcast on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass and NASCAR Digital Media. All right. Welcome back to the Forward Bike Podcast. We're happy to have a very special guest here on the Andy's Towing Hotline tonight with us. Uh, Long-time race announcer and, and racing promoter and aficionado, and he's been there and done that and been all across this country doing this racing stuff out of Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, Ozzy Altman, what's going on tonight, Ozzy? Oh, just chilling out, you know, still recovering from uh, what happened to me four years ago up in New Hampshire when I suffered a stroke. And I've been in Asheville in a healthcare facility getting a lot of physical therapy and help and uh just being patient and glad to wake up every day and see a beautiful day and talk to people and see them and spend some time with my family occasionally down around atlanta but uh, i i sure miss being at the racetrack of all things it's it's difficult for me to even watch a race on television or pot on uh streaming because i'm i want to be there so bad yeah, it's got to it's got to hurt as long as as many years you've been involved with the sport and every different aspect. It's I, I imagine it's hard sitting there uh, to watch them and not be there. So that's got to be tough. Yeah, I really wanted to be in uh, St. Louis this past weekend because I think so much of Ray and Sue Marler out at Peevely at I fifty five Raceway and Schrader. And I spend a lot of time out there helping them promote races and do things there. They're like family to me. And I wanted to see that SRX race in person. But uh, old Tony put it on him, on him again on the dirt. So You you weren't shocked by that, were you? 
Not at all. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, yeah, he, uh, they had the biggest crowd they've ever had there, they said at Peevely this weekend, probably with that big race there, SRX. Well, nobody deserves it any better than Ray and Sue Marler. Ray is, is, I give him kudos. He is certainly one of the best track preparation guys in the dirt racing business. And Sue is such a fine person. They make just a great couple and they're blessed to have that place in St. Louis and, you know, Schrader, his input and everything that he does. And they're working with Federated Auto Parts. I'm so proud to hear that they had the biggest crowd they've ever had because They've worked hard for it for years, and I love them like family. Yeah, absolutely, Ozzy. Well, let's uh, let's jump right into this. Uh, your, I just want to hear about your whole life and times and career and everything. So let's go back to uh, all the way back. Let me joggle your memory all the way back to uh, whenever you first got, you know, maybe first saw a race or first picked up a microphone or or anything that first that you remember going to some races back in your uh, in your in your formative years. You got it. Well, I grew up in Jacksonville. That's my hometown. And uh, my dad began carrying me to the racetrack there, Speedway Park. No longer there. On the, was on the west side of Jacksonville, the corner of Plymouth and Lenox. Just a block or two away from where Leroy and Eldon and Yarber grew up, where the Van Zants lived, of course, of Leonard Skinnerd fame. And daddy started carrying me to Speedway Park there in the early 60s. And we had some favorite local drivers there. I did. Of course, Leroy Yarbrough was one of them. And there were some great rivalries. That's where I first got to watch Tiny Lund race. When Tiny rolled into town, he'd leave with the money, usually in the trophy. And he became what the locals called a villain. And there were also some other villains there. And one of them was called the fugitive, the late Rance Phillips. And a lot of people called him one eyed Rance. And they would talk about, they had to pour him in the race car because he had a lot of liquid courage in his system when he was out on that racetrack, but he, he was a bad to the bone dude now. And he's passed on now, but he raced against some of the other greats of the day, Eddie McDonald senior. And, uh, others that raced to Jacksonville and throughout the years, I was eventually able to announce races with a lot of those guys that I had watched race at the old speedway park, but there were some legendary stories there. I particularly remember one night when one of my local favorites, Rod, U Rod Ulenfeld got into a tangle with Eddie McDonald senior. And McDonald was coming around the racetrack under caution. Well, Rod, where he had spun out, had got out of the car and was helping the track workers. He had a shovel in his hand and he was helping the track workers throw loose dirt over the fluids that was spilled on the racetrack. And when Eddie came around under the caution, Rod reared back with that shovel and chucked it like a spear at Eddie's car. Well, it hit the window post right there by the corner of the windshield and the window and the shovel flipped back over ricocheted and came back and hit Rod in the nose and knocked him out cold. It was one of the funniest things that I ever did see at a racetrack, but wow. <laughs> Rod, 
he dad gum near lost his nose. It almost cut his nose off, but it knocked him out right there with the place where it happened. And uh, up until Eddie passed away, there was only a few people that I know that was there at that time that's still alive to testify to that really happening because I like to joke around and talk about the craziest stuff that you never would believe happened, but really did happen at a racetrack. And that's one of them. Well, you just now put it on the record for people to hear. So it's, it happened. I've, I've seen a lot of stuff, but chucking a, a shovel at the guy that dumped you, that's, that's gotta be a first. Well, it bounced off that, that window post and come back and hit Rod right in the head and just knocked him out cold, cold right there in the, on the racetrack. Fell down, flopped like a sack of rocks. And it cut him across the nose. He almost lost his nose. He had a scar there forever. Well, Eulenfeld went on to race at Daytona years later. But uh, my daddy passed away since I've been here, since I had the stroke. And he was my hero, Big Bob Altman. But he began carrying me to the races at Daytona in 1961. And he would never miss enough. He always carried me to the twin qualifiers. And they were run on a Thursday after a Thursday before the 500. And daddy couldn't always take off of work or couldn't always get tickets to the 500, but he never failed to carry me to at least the twins. And back in those days, they were pure D heat races to get into the Daytona 500. And they were highly competitive. I remember seeing Richard Petty sail out of the racetrack in turn one, and then seeing uh, his daddy sail out of the racetrack in turn four. Actually leaving the speedway, crazy stuff. But we'd go to those twin 125s, and I had, I had a deal that my daddy gave me a long time ago those races happened on a school day and he told me he promised me he said son as long as you make good grades you can always go with me on that thursday take out of school and go come to daytona with me to those races so it kind of helped me on my schoolwork because it was a great incentive for me to knuckle down on my homework and my grades so i could go with him and I always got to go so i thought i was hot stuff i didn't have to go to school in those days <laughs> and uh living living the high life and one of those times we were there daddy i never seen my daddy drink when i was growing up little he saved more of that when i got to be 18 to 21 and he had fun to get we had fun together but he wasn't one that drank alcohol in the house but we we were sitting in our seats or getting situated for the twins one day at daytona i guess i was probably eight or nine years old and the next thing you know, here comes a, a bunch of hooligans. I mean, just, you could tell they was a rough bunch. By the way, they came up and they were talking and cussing and just ready to go. And they, they had a cooler full of beer. And my dad has already looked at me, shook his head like, no, just don't even get involved in anything they say, just ignore them. Well, this was back in the day when Carling Black Label sponsored some race cars. And they used to have those commercials on television with the whistle Mabel, Black Label. <laughs> and that was a slogan for Carling Black Label beer. Well, everybody in the group, anytime they wanted their beer, they'd whistle 
Mabel and called one guy Mabel, he'd pop open the cooler and toss him a beer. <laughs> so I'll call him Mabel. In this story, I call the guy Mabel. Now, he was smoking them. I don't know if it was them Territons or whatever them cigarettes were that were about, I don't know, big old long cigarettes, super long, like Benson and Hedges, whatever. Virginia Slims. Something. Whatever. <laughs> well, he was he was about half drunk. They were all about three quarters drunk at least. And old Mabel was sitting there directly in front of me, and he was smoking him a cigarette. Well, he about nodded off drunk, and he had that big old long cigarette in his hand. And when the fire went down on that, got down to his hand, it burned his, burned his hand, and he lurched forward with that cigarette. Well, directly in front of him was one of those ladies. She was a nice-looking lady, but she had one of them beehive hairdos. <laughs> That back in the early and mid sixties was all the rage for the women. She must have had it sprayed down with a quart of a Dorn or White Rain hairspray. And when old Mabel's cigarette hit that hair beehive hairdo, it went to stinking and burning, <laughs> caught fire. And he didn't know what to do. He just freaked out. So he just stood up. And she was directly in front of him, and he's directly in front of me. He stood up and just started pancaking her head, trying to put the fire out. The next thing you know, directly in front of him, sitting by the woman, this guy stood up. He must have been about 6'8". And he reared back and hit Mabel. sounded like you hit a watermelon with a baseball bat. <laughs> his Carlin Black his Carlin Black label went straight up in the air. It was raining Carlin Black label. I was covered in beer. Like I said, I wasn't never exposed to alcohol at that young age. But Mabel got knocked out cold and it rained Carlin Black label for five minutes or so. He was, as he's trying he's just beating a woman on top of the head trying to put her hair fire out and and you were thrown in the middle of it and you and you've loved it ever since i was just sitting right here and that's got to be one of the funniest things i've ever seen at a racetrack well personally i guess that one of the other funniest things that i've ever seen happen to me during the weekend of the 600 that never would end you know the World 600 at Charlotte Motor Speedway, yes, the Coca-Cola yeah. 600? Yes, sir. Well, there was one particular weekend. It was the race that David Rudiman ended up winning. But that weekend and that day just wouldn't end. It lasted forever, and it went on into Memorial Day. I was there. We, we, were, we were still at the track on Monday working, and here, oh, and behold, here we got another rain delay. And uh, Marcus Smith... Uh, stuck his head in the tower and said, hey, get, we were in a rain delay again. He said, send one of the cameramen and Ozzy down in the grandstand to interview, interview some of these fans. <laughs> I said, yes, sir. Off we went. Well, as you can well imagine, they've been there all weekend watching the races. This particular race started on Sunday, and it's now Monday. And I don't know if we're in the umpteenth dozen rain delay on that day, but they've been drinking all the time in the grandstands. And when they see the camera, they're whooping it up like, here, 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 come over here, come in. And I was just kind of like steering the cameraman away, like, no, we don't want to go over there, you know. Everybody wanted to be on camera, but, you know, you just couldn't let anybody be on the camera. 
<laughs> yeah. especially drunk x-rated language or what have you but uh the cameraman actually has worked for nascar for a long time he's also from jacksonville thomas lanahan and he had the camera and we turned and went up some steps and i was primarily inter interviewing well i was interviewing everybody just asking some standard questions hey how you doing how long you been coming to charlotte motor speedway where are you from who you rooting for and i was interviewing because of memorial day a lot of veterans and retired military people taking time to talk about that and then couldn't get a word out of my mouth all of a sudden hey black 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 blank 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 hey come over here come over here and we'd have to give somebody a look over and say oh no we better not talk to them <laughs> not to be too judgmental but you know you could expect what was going to come out of their mouth yes. we got women and children in the grandstands so then i looked around and i saw this one gal and she was dressed pretty decently i mean she had on some jean shorts but she had on like a lacy top and she didn't she didn't fit the mold of white trash and she didn't look to be too inebriated to talk to so i just started the standard questions with her and everything we were doing was going up on speedway tv on the big screen you know <laughs> The people we're interviewing. So I, you know, asked her where she was from, and she was from the Pittsburgh area. And for years, there's been a ton of people from Pennsylvania come to Charlotte Motor Speedway to the races. So when she said that, a bunch of they whooped it up a lot, you know. And I asked her, you know, who she was rooting for, and she turned around. And I was like, oh boy. She turned around and bent over and dropped her drawers completely down past her knees. <laughs> oh God. Bent over in front of me. Well, I had to I hit Thomas's camera with my arm to keep it from showing up on the big screen. <laughs> and she she didn't have a tramp stamp. She had on one cheek of her butt, she had on a bow tie uh emblem, Chevrolet <laughs> bow tie, and on the other side she had a Jimmy Johnson number forty eight Chevrolet. <laughs> she was answering huh? your question <laughs> she damn sure did that <laughs> and, we, uh, we don't found jimmy johnson super fan in the stands oh my god and uh, you know what i still hate myself i never did get her phone number oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's a classic aussie story right there well i'm telling you what you know you can ask lanahan the poor little production girl, I'd worked with her before. She worked for JHE, and uh, she was, at, you know, helping in a lot of NASCAR races where I would do starting lineups or whatever. She was one of the girls on the mic headset that would tell me what to do, you know, when to do it. I looked at her, her face was purple. <laughs> she she was, like, freaked out, and I'm like, oh, it'll be okay. <laughs> I mean, ain't none of them other people seen what we're seeing right now. <laughs> and I was loving every minute of it. I bet that was great. I, I mean, I was at that race that day. I, I, I truly remember it. It was a miserable day with all those rain delays and stuff. And I remember you interviewing those people in the stands, but gosh, I don't remember that highlight. And I don't think I've ever heard that story until today. Well, I kept the camera from seeing it all. 
Well, Ozzy, we're going to take a quick, uh, short little break right here, and we'll come back. This is the Forward Bike Podcast on the Speed Sport Podcast Network. All right, we're back here on the Forward Bike Podcast uh, talking to Ozzy Altman, and Ozzy just shared an incredible story about Charlotte Motor Speedway, and uh, man, I, I think that one was a good one. <laughs> we got some <laughs> true fans least, out there. To say the least. So, Ozzy, I, we really want to know how you kind of got started in that announcing and uh, maybe kind of lead up to what, you know, the Have a Tampa series began, and, and I know you were a big part of that all throughout the 90s, and that's that's why I'm really interested in hearing some of those stories. Beautiful. Okay, well, uh, it's going to take us back to a, a unique situation. Years ago in the 60s, one of my grandfathers was a Greek immigrant who had restaurants, and he had coincidentally had a long-term lease on the restaurant in Byron, Georgia, where all the racers stayed at the hotel there when they raced at Middle Georgia Raceway. And you may have may have been familiarized with Middle Georgia Raceway at Byron, Georgia, on one of the episodes of Lost Speedways with Dale Jr. and Matty Dillner. Mm-hmm. Correct. It was, yeah. the pl- it was the place where they had the moonshine still underneath the racetrack. Yes, I remember that one. Well, my granddaddy ran the restaurant there at the... Uh, Hotel, the Magnolia Inn, right on Interstate 75 in Byron, Georgia. And all of the teams stayed there. I mean, I remember back G.C. Spencer, Tiger Tom. I remember seeing Richard Petty there with his 1967 championship jacket on. So this was 67, 68. And uh, Tiny Lund was one of my favorite heroes. Growing up, Fireball Roberts was my all-time favorite racer. None other but Fireball, but I love Tiny as well. And I had met Tiny as a kid. Actually, I had met Tiny, I think, on the same night that I met Red Farmer the first time in the infield at Jacksonville with my dad down in the pits. Well, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to your uh, question here, but it's so <laughs> amazing. So many things happened surrounding that racetrack at Middle Georgia Raceway in Byron, Georgia. So many things happened that are so impactful on my racing business that it's just amazing. But anyway, there was one day or one night. Now, Tiny, one of my favorite racers, and what he was about six foot six, six foot seven, weighed about 250 or more pounds. And my little Greek granddaddy was about five foot six. And all I remember is Tiny come in cussing and raising up a storm at my granddaddy wanting two steaks. He wanted two blankety-blank T-bone steaks. And he wanted them right now. He was hungry. And my granddaddy in his Greek accent telling him, no, grill is closed. The grill is closed. He, he had already cleaned the grill. He said, no, the grill is closed. Tiny had him backed into a corner wanting two blankety-blank steaks. And I'm looking at this and thinking, oh, I'm going to see one of my heroes kill my granddaddy right now. This ain't good. <laughs> well, what I didn't know at the time was that Tiny had been down. Somebody had lured him down into the basement down there at the racetrack to look at the moonshine still, which was a great, intricate piece of work. It was first class. But uh, <clears throat> they had got him down in the hole to look at it, and some smart aleck pulled the ladder up through the hole where Tiny couldn't get out. So Tiny had been trapped down in that hole all day long. And there wasn't nothing to drink but 
white lightning <laughs> and nothing to eat. And he comes back to the hotel wanting something to eat, and everybody else had had their dinner, and Tiny hadn't had nothing. Now he wanted a couple of steaks and the girl is closed, and he is hot, and he is well inebriated. <laughs> God bless him. I hate talking bad about people, that dead people, especially <laughs> people that I like so much. Well, that's, but, a, that's an interesting story there, too. He, was, he, he, he made such a scene with my granddaddy. <clears throat> Had him backed up against the counter, and like I said, hovering over him. He is a, definitely a foot taller than my granddaddy, but he was all in his face just telling him, you better cook me a steak right now. And only one person in the crowd intervened, and I say I give him credit for saving my granddaddy's life. And it's a man that I not only love as a racer, but he's one of my favorite human beings of all time. And that's one of the Alabama gang boys, one of the leaders. Bobby Allison possibly saved my granddaddy's life that night. He kind of steered Tiny out the side door and calmed him down and uh, explained to him that the grill was closed. Or as my granddaddy said, no, no, grill is closed. The grill is closed. Well, he finally got Tiny to understand it. Tiny understood and didn't take, any, take it out of my granddaddy anymore. But it was at that racetrack or that hotel that Bob Harmon stayed there. There was an apartment right above the restaurant in the hotel. And when Bob, Uncle Bob was promoting short track races at Nashville and at uh, Byron there at Middle Georgia, wherever he was promoting, he would, whenever he had races at Middle Georgia, he would stay in that apartment upstairs above the, the uh, restaurant. And that's where I got to meet him. And he put me to work doing small things for him, helping him promote races. I learned many tricks of the trade from Uncle Bob Harmon uh, with flyers, banners, posters, and things. He was one that taught me years ago. He says, you know, you got to watch some of these small towns, some of these smart alecks that go try to take your banners and flyers down. He said, there's one way to keep that from happening. I said, how's that, Uncle Bob? He said, go places to put them up where they won't go to take them down where you got to go across a creek full of briars or <laughs> over, over and around barbed wire fences or halfway up a tree or whatever. He says, if you get them up there, they won't go and take them down. You're good to go. So I applied that practice many times throughout the years, putting up banners and signs and whatnot. So it's just one of the slick tricks, as I always said about Uncle Bob. God, I miss him. He was a great person, a great promoter, and a dadgum good announcer. And he was one like Jimmy Mosteller, the late Jimmy Mosteller, that always told me, he says, now, you got to keep talking all the time around the racetrack. He says, when, when they can't hear you in turn four, they can hear you in turn one. He says, you just keep, you keep calling the race the whole, whole, all the way around the lap. I think a lot of people over here says, oh, he just likes to hear himself talk. No, I just like to tell people what's going on in the races. And Mosteller told me to keep talking. That was my job. I said, yes, sir. Well, that's where I met Mosteller. He was announcing a race for Harmon back then at Middle Georgia. And I was there, you know, imagine this. My dad never minded going to visit his father-in-law, my granddaddy when the races were in town at middle Georgia, 
because we got to hang out with all the racers. They all lived at, or stayed at that hotel and ate at my granddaddy's restaurant. I mean, everybody, the whole gang, the NASCAR gang, all the drivers, all the officials, everybody. So we were out at the racetrack one afternoon and Mosteller come out of the tower to interview people and they didn't have no cordless mics back then. He come out and he was dragging a microphone cable that must have been 40 foot long behind <laughs> him. And he come up and, and straddled up beside me and started interviewing me and asked me, you know, talking about me liking the races. And I was talking, yeah, and told him about going to Jacksonville and when I started going to Daytona so early. And he asked me something about, what do you want to do? I said, I want to announce races like you're doing. He says, okay, son. And how ironic that is that years later, I would go to work for Mosteller announcing races. Very ironic. He stuck a and microphone did, in that, my face that, one time too, just like you're saying, and I know exactly what you're saying. Uh, and that, that place is also where I first met and got to know Buddy Baker. Yeah. At Byron, middle Georgia, right at my granddaddy's uh, place at the restaurant. We were sitting around one day, come back from the racetrack, and Buddy went out and dove in the pool and busted his head wide open on the bottom of the pool. He come up out of the water, bleeding everywhere, all down his face. And I don't know if you ever heard stories about Buck, Buddy's daddy, but he could he could he could cuss a five star blue streak. <laughs> <laughs> uh. I mean, people, people give me a hard time sometimes about cussing and me and my buddy, Kenny Wallace, they ask us sometimes, how do y'all, how do, how in the world do you two cats work on the microphone or on television or whatever, as much as you cuss? I say, well, and I, I have a line that I give them for that, but I better not use it right <laughs> now. But anyway, I had never heard nobody cuss anybody like Buck Baker cuss buddy that day. Well, ironically, with all the visits that we had been there to my granddaddy's restaurant, there was one little road we took to go to my, one of my aunt's, aunt and uncle's house that lived in Roberta, Georgia, not too far away. Well, about a mile away from the hotel and the restaurant, there was a doctor's office. And we knew it because we always saw the sign when we'd go that way to go to my uncle's. And so when Buck was cussing Buddy for busting his head open, my daddy whistled at him and said, hey, there's a doctor right down the road, Buck. I'm like, yeah? And he said, yeah, come on, just follow us. So he loaded Buddy up and followed us about, it was about three miles away, I guess, to this doctor's office. This doctor stitched him up. And that's another one that Buddy lived to talk about. And then years later, I would go to work with Buddy when we both worked for ASA. He was doing the TNN broadcasting. And we would travel the roads together promoting the ASA races. But not only did I meet Mosteller at that place, but I met Buddy and would go to work with him later on years down the road. And that was, that was great times riding the road to Buddy. So you talk about stories. We had some good ones. We made some of our own, too. <laughs> I don't doubt that one bit. But now, I, years later, I had lived in St. Louis and I was a sales manager for a food company out there. And uh, then we decided to move back 
to Florida slash Georgia. And uh, I was working as a radio DJ uh, on St. Simon's Island at a WYNR radio station. The studio was atop the marina on St. Simon's, but we were living just outside of Brunswick. And uh, not only did I do the afternoon drive show on the radio, it's kind of like Dick Van Dyke in the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang movie. In a small market radio station, you got to do all that stuff. You got to go sell the advertising, you got to write and produce the commercials, and you got to pull your air shift. So as soon as I got that job, I knew that number one on my target of a list to sell advertisement to would be the area racetracks, like in Golden Isle Speedway, Waycross, mm-hmm. Jacksonville, and what have you. <clears throat> So Jesse Guy was the owner of uh, Golden Isle Speedway, and I began to call on him to sell him advertising for his racing. And, you know, as a, as a promoter or a track owner, you would hope that the people that are on the air on the radio are friendly to your calls and your events because you know they're going to talk about your, your track, what have you, when they're on the air. So, uh, heck yeah, we hit it off, and I started writing and producing commercials for him. And he said, hey, how about you coming out and announcing my races on Friday night? I said, I'd love to, and we struck a little deal up for that. So Jesse and Margie ran that place, and I loved them. Jesse was a former winning racer, and so he hired me to uh, – announces races at Golden Isle Speedway on Friday night. Whoa, and you talk about some exciting action back in the old track when it was so fast. And I mean, you talk about the hobby stocks and the street stocks running like things a super speedway. Oh, yeah. Because that was all. It had Bunker C all on it. it the, the clay was packed down and covered in Bunker C all. And it, it just looked like it was paved. Bill Fry called it redneck asphalt. <laughs> redneck asphalt. But it was lightning fast. And so I was working for him. And then come to find out, here comes the Have a Tampa Dirt Racing Series coming in town. <clears throat> so I'm there while they're in town. And uh, lo and behold, there's Mr. Mosteller. And I've known him for many years from back in the days in middle Georgia. And he was a... You know, before he became a vice president and president of sales for the Have a Tampa Philly Cigar Company, he had the route selling cigars. And we had a lot of common friends throughout South Georgia. So we hit it off real good. I was I was there in the tower, and he kind of cornered me up and said, uh, Hey, young man. I said, Yes, sir. Introduced himself, and I reminded him that we had met many years ago, and that kicked it off good. And then. He said, I need a favor if I can ask one. I said, yes, sir. He said, my announcer has laryngitis. Would you announce my races for me tonight? I said, yes, sir. I'd be glad to. And his regular announcer at the time was a guy named David Roberts. And he had laryngitis that weekend. And Moss Stellar asked me to announce the have a tamper races, the heat races and whatnot while they're at Golden Isles. I said, I'd be glad to. And boom, we hit it off. And. Next thing you know, he and Mike Swims asked me if I'd be interested in 
going on tour with their Avatampa series around and announcing all their races. I said, yeah. So that got me moved up to a Woodstock area. So the wife and I, we moved up there and I went to work for Mike swims and the Havatampa series with Mosteller. And, and that, that led to a lot of history. But before I proceed to say anything else about the Havatampa series or the swims family, just ask everybody about her head for a moment to remember a great one. Miss Martha swims just passed away recently and Mickey and Martha owned and ran both Dixie and Rome Speedway for many years. Still have it. Well, Miss Martha passed away, and I'm going to really miss her. I just sent out my condolences to Marshall Green, Mia Swims, and the whole Swims family. They are special people, they, they especially, to, especially to Mickey. I sure hate it. He lost his lifetime partner. But she was one special woman and always very sweet to me. And I'm sorry to hear that she's gone now. They were, they were very influential in, I would say, what we've got now in dirt racing. Like, that was the first major series that we had that traveled around the country and had, you know, put on big races like that. So, yeah, they definitely, they're, they're icons of the sport. And like you said, real good people. The best. I mean, salt of the earth. And believing hard work gets it done and honesty and miss martha didn't put up with no nonsense from anybody and she was sweet as she could be but she was like your mama you know she expected you to do the right thing and when i went to work for them on, on the road Mosteller and mike sat me down and said we want you not only to announce these races but promote these races we need you going to the radio stations and talking to people you know you know how to talk their language go to the television stations, make friends there with sports directors and what have you, get to the newspapers. And I had to write, I wrote all the press releases for the series and we didn't have internet back then. We had to fax things and we had a fax service that I would write the press release, whether it was the pre-event or post-event press release. And heck, that was when I had my first laptop you know, to it didn't have a printer going with me down the road, but you know, I'd, it was you'd have to get real creative and print off your press release, and then I'd fax it to the guy that was over in Raleigh, and I had I had gradually made fax lists for him that surrounded and were specific to each and every racetrack we raced at. And there were hundreds and hundreds of faxes that would go out when I would send one simple fax to him. And then that's how we've promoted our events and help. We help the promoters promote their events. You know, if they were hosting one of our events and we were behind them a hundred percent. That's pretty cool. But uh, now the, it's also unique how I met Mike the first time it was uh, many years prior when I was living in Atlanta. My mom lived in Gwinnett County and I was working over near Norcross in the Atlanta area, wasn't working with racing at all, but there was a, uh, ad that I saw in the Atlanta journal constitution for some tickets to an Atlanta Falcons game that I wanted to go to. And I called it and the guy told me, 
yeah, he had them and how much he wanted for them. And I said, okay, well, how do I see you? And he told me where to meet him. Well, lo and behold, it was on Sixes Road, just north of Woodstock, in Canton, actually, about a mile from where Mike lived. And I met Mike Swims at a service station slash convenience store that would eventually become my neighborhood service station when we moved to Atlanta, exactly at that place, just down the road from where he lived. And that's where I first met Mike Swims and bought a pair of tickets to Atlanta Falcons game that I went to. And uh, lo and behold, years later, I'd go to work for him. So I don't know if it was fate having a lot to do with some of the stuff, but I sure do miss that cat. I think he was a good, he was a good one. I think you've got a voice for it too. That was just uh, your voice that you brought to the table in those, in those days was, uh, was, uh, was, was famous. I mean, you go back and watch all them old videos and stuff. And well, I say old videos, I guess they are now. And, uh, and man, you're, you're the voice of all that stuff. And then you brought a little bit of TV broadcast to it and put it on national television and, and all that. Talk a little bit about how all that came to be. Well, when I went to work with Mike and, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy explained to me the importance of spreading the brand of the Have a Tampa Philly cigars into each market that we went to. You know, it was about selling cigars. It was basic business. But they expressed to me how they wanted to grow the series to help grow the brand even more. And when I went to work with them, they were racing in seven different states in the deep southeast. And by the fourth or fifth year I was working with them, we were racing in 21 different states and it's, it's a unique thing because I jokingly, but seriously, when people ask me who my favorite announcer is, I always tell them Brett Emmerich, you know, he was the stars announcer, the announcer for the stars series. And he essentially did the same job for stars that I did for have a Tampa. But we always hit it off and we played fair with one another when we worked. But actually, I was at that time trying to recruit Stars drivers to come race with us. And eventually it was successful with guys coming aboard, guys like uh, Rick Eckert, Steve Francis, Steve Shaver, Mike Balzano, and other guys that have been loyal Stars racers that I brought aboard the have a Tampa series to race with us. And that leads me to another unique story, which involves what I call our Thursday night massacres. We had some infamous races on Thursday nights during the have a Tampa days back in 95 and 96. And one of them happened at a, a place called Carter County, Carter County Speedway in Olive Hill, Kentucky. Well, if you know anything about that area, it's about a mile away from Grayson, Kentucky. And if that rings a bell to any racing oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Jack Boggs. Well, all of the Boggs. Randy Boggs. Oh. Yeah, well, we wind up racing at Carter County, Kentucky. The guy that was promoting the races, his nickname was Zero. We get there that day, and we're scheduled to go to Paducah the next day race the next night in Paducah. So we're at Carter County Speedway in the heat of the summer. It must've been 112 degrees. And we get out there and start racing. 
And before you know what happened, one of my buddies who was the official at the time for the series had already put Jack, Jackie, and Randy at the rear of the field in each of their heat races for some reason or another. Well, you talk about stirring up a crowd. Might, might as well throw gas on them and throw the match to it. <laughs> that was the wrong thing to do. He has penalized every bog who's ever born in Kentucky before we get before we get to the Concies. <laughs> wow. And the crowd is getting revved up bad. For what? What did he do that for? Uh, apparently one of them jumped to start. Another one spun somebody out. <laughs> okay. Oh. That's what they wanted to know, the Boggs fans. What did he do that for? Well, it gets more intense. We get, we go on and limp our way into the feature. It is so hot and the track is so dusty. And this guy has actually raped them people. It's supposed to be a hundred lap race on a Thursday night. And he's charged them some ungodly amount of money to get in. See, we really couldn't control or we couldn't dictate what the promoter was going to charge the fans, which was kind of scary because it put the series in jeopardy of getting a bad rap, but we didn't have that control over the promoter, but he had charged them some ungodly amount of money and we get there and when we start to feature, we're seven laps into the feature and have to throw the caution. You couldn't see nothing. Mm-hmm. It was it was so dusty. It's one of the dustiest racetracks I've ever seen. But it was one of the Thursday night massacres. And there was another Thursday night massacre closer to here that happened later that same year. But anyway, we throwed a caution. And then we brought all the drivers into the infield and just told them to shut their cars off. And I went down there. He told me, he said, go down there and talk to some of them, see what they say. So I go down there. Now, Francis is leading this race, and we have to stop it because I have to red flag it because you can't see. Freddie was running second, Freddie Smith. So I had never had any, had any serious dealings with Steve Francis and didn't really know him that close back then. Like I said, he was racing stars, and he was one of the guys I wanted to recruit to come race with us. So I go down there just expecting him to just crawl over me and just start giving me the up and down by stopping the damn race when he was leading it. Well, when I got down to the infield, the first guy that I talked to, Freddie Smith, had crawled out of his car and he looked at me and he said, Ozzy, you got to do something. Somebody's going to get killed here. I said, okay, Fred, we'll do what we got to do. So we got, but we got to run a race here. We'll get through it. And then I turn and here's Francis and I expect him just to rip me rip my head off for stopping the race when he was leading it. And he was just as nice as he could be, but he said, it's bad. He says, I'm leading the race and I can't see where I'm going. So imagine what people behind me are seeing. So wow. he earned my respect immediately. <clears throat> A guy like that. I was, I, you know, I was ready for him to jump down my throat and tap dance on my liver. <laughs> But he was just straight up. And so from then on, I've had tremendous amount of respect for Steve. And we went on and did a lot of business together later on with his teams. And he and I went into boardroom and Valvoline and worked out a good deal for him at the time. 
and we became decent friends. I mean, I think a lot of Steve, but, uh, that race happened at, uh, Carter County Speedway. Well, the Boggs penalties didn't go away. We might've got through the race, but before it was over with Jackie ended up finished like next to last or something. And Jack somehow or another, he had penalized Jack as we got to the feature in the feature, Jack and Randy, both. And the, uh, grandstands, the crowd went crazy and there was a big old catwalk at the top of the grandstands, steel girded grandstands, but there's a big old catwalk at the top. And next thing I hear is here comes Jack coming to the tower. He's looking for to have a Tampa official. Jack's coming to the tower and the whole mobs behind him. I don't know a hundred or two more people behind him. I mean, the damn grandstands was rocking. And you could hear them. It sounded like a damn jungle crowd out of a Tarzan movie. They were like, ooga, 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 like, oh, they're going to kill somebody, you know. And they're all coming there. Well, I looked at the door, and the door had two U-hooks in it on the outside for a Katie bar. <laughs> and uh, I told Jim as as – you could damn feel the tower shaking because there was so many people on that catwalk storming toward the tower, following Jack, you know, now this is after the race because he wants some, they want some vengeance for the bogs being penalized and finishing so bad in the race. Francis ended up winning the race. I did not go down to the track to interview him. Actually, they brought Francis up to the tower and did the winner's interview in the tower. And by this time, Jack has led the mob to the tower looking for us or looking for my buddy that made the calls and wanting to hang him. And I saw, I saw them hooks for the Katie bar. And I told him, I said, drop that bar in them hooks. Now I said, drop that bar, drop. And he said, like, looked at me like, what? I said, drop that damn bar in them hooks. Now, (laughs) no sooner, no sooner had he dropped the damn bar in them hooks. The bar was a damn I don't know, a four by four or something. No sooner than he dropped that thing in there, the damn door flew off the hinges. It kicked the door in. (laughs) They were after y'all. At no other place that I ever remembered this, but inside the tower, in the PA booth, there was a microphone stand. I mean, one of them three-legged microphone stands. No other place that I ever had that. You just had the microphone and the cord, but there was a microphone stand. So when that door flew off the hinges, I had that microphone stand in my hand. I was about ready to go upside somebody's head with it. <laughs> and all of a sudden through the crowd, Jack stuck his head through there. His head peeked through the door and said, Ozzy, I said, yeah. He said, you want to get out of here alive? I said, hell yeah. He said, come on with me now. So no sooner than he said that I'd already taken my have a Tampa official have a Tampa shirt off. And I was just wearing a T-shirt, a plain white T-shirt, and I followed him. <clears throat> and we walked down, and there was a like the building by the scale. It sounded like gunshots going off inside that. It was Jackie in there throwing furniture around, rearranging the furniture, throwing chairs <laughs> against the wall, and what have you. He said, "Ozzy, you hear that?" I said, "Yeah." He says, "How about I throw your boy in there and let Jackie straighten him out?" I said, "No, nah, you don't want to do that." 
He says, by God, I'm going to do it. I said, no, Jack, let's just get out of here. I said, good enough. I said, we done had enough dust and the fans is mad about that. And then they're mad because y'all got penalized. And now you want to kill us. Get me out of town. Like you said, you would. He said, okay, well, it didn't stop there. One of our fearless co-employees had recently lettered up our vans with all this fancy uh, decal. They have a Tampa Dirt Racing Series on the windows and whatnot. So we were driving marked vehicles. And uh, <laughs> this is not good. He comes up to us as we're walking. We're still storm walking out of this place with bogs leading away. And the crowd behind us is kind of thinned out a little bit. And so I'm still walking stride for stride with Jack. And uh, the other guy comes up to us, Scott comes and said, Hey, you want to go get something to eat? I said, Are you crazy as hell? I said, We're going to Paducah and we're going right now. He said, You're not going to the hotel? I said, And those wagons? Hell no. <laughs> you got the whole town looking for you. Right. Might as well put up a sign on the outside. This is where you can come to kill me. <laughs> so we loaded up in our van and we went straight to Paducah. And when they rolled in the next afternoon at Paducah in their van, it didn't have windows. It had garbage bags all taped up to it. And they got a whole And people had busted every window out of them vans. So we made a smart move by getting out of town. No but doubt. that was one of them thir Thursday night uh catastrophes we had another one over at metrolina speedway later in the year oh yeah i want to hear about this one i've heard some stuff about this go ahead and pretty much the same story <laughs> I, I i don't want to call the promoters by name but they were notorious for uh pulling off some stinky stuff on the fans and the racers it wasn't none, it wasn't none of the fur family i'll, I'll give you that it wasn't henry or nobody like that but the unnamed promoters had really jacked the prices up on these people, and the racetrack was garbage at Metrolina. Once again, high prices, so dusty you can't even race. There was a damn hole in turn four so deep, and I'm not exaggerating. That's one thing that you'll get from me. If you don't want to know the truth, don't ask me, because I'm going to tell you. <laughs> somebody might get their feelings hurt, but... I'm not going to exaggerate and tell you they're five wide when they're three wide. I'm going to tell you the truth. So this damn hole in turn four was so deep that at one point of the race, I swear to you, there's got to be video of it. At one point of the race, Scott Lundquist has spun, and his car was sideways down in the hole, and that hole was so deep that Blomquist's roof was about level with the edges of the hole, and Bub McCool run through the turn and actually drove slap across Scott's roof without causing any real damage because Scott's car was sitting down at the bottom of that hole. <clears throat> Old boy from Mooresville, Danny Brewer, he endowed and did an end over end about seven or eight times down the back stretch. I thought he was dead, <laughs> but wow. he survived. And the, the local crowd in Charlotte got to see Freddie win the race. And the Scott haters got to see Scott get wrecked out of the race for us over with. So we survived the wrath of the fans being mad because we did have to red flag that race and shorten it to instead of a hundred lapper, it was a fifty lapper or fifty one lapper. 
I may have been there. I, I remember going to a, have a Tampa race in the in the 90s, and Freddie Smith won, but that was all I remember about it. And I don't remember all that extra stuff going on, but it, that it might have been that same night. But I, was, I would have only been five or six years old, so I may have not been paying that much attention at that time. Well, there's a lot of hell raising and un- unhappy <laughs> people with another one of them Thursday night fiascos. Yeah, I remember that being a Thursday night, and I remember my dad uh, came and got me and my brother from wherever we were and said, come on, we're going to a race, and it was just uncharacteristic because he worked all the time. Well, next thing you know, and I just thought, a race? Well, we must be going to Gaffney because that's about all we ever went. Well, we're going up 85, and we get off up, we're go, you know, get off and go up 77 and then go a little ways there, Sunset Road, and and – Going to Metrolina, and that was the first time I ever remember going there, and that probably was that race you're talking about. Yeah, pretty pretty neat, man. We're uh, we're just scratching the surface on this. My goodness, I know you got a lot more stories. I got a few more. I got a few more things I really kind of want to touch on. I know. Uh, go ahead. I know. Whenever uh, Have a Tampa first was going to go to Bristol, that was kind of a big deal, and you were behind the scenes on that, I believe. Yeah, actually. Uh... There's one guy that doesn't get a lot of credit for that, that helped out immensely. Uh, certainly, rest his soul, Bruton, the big boss man, spent the money. And I can't, I can't actually swear to it, but I heard that it cost somewhere in the neighborhood of $200,000 to clean up Bristol Motor Speedway after that first dirt race at Bristol. Wow. I mean... Red clay sucked up in the air conditioner vents and all everything. Everything was covered with it, and but it was Bruton that put that money out there. But my brother Randall Chup, I don't think there's anybody I'm tighter with in racing than old Randall. He's a good one, a hell of a racer. Just a great, a great mind for setups. He he's worked with some of the best over the years. Doesn't get credit for a lot of things he did. He was a crew chief for Freddie Smith for two of Freddie's five dirt track world championships up at Pennsboro back in the day. And Randall was also Ronnie Johnson's crew chief the year Ronnie won the dirt track world championship up there at Pennsboro. So Randall's a heck of a setup guy, a hell of a racer. Just a guy you don't want to tangle with. But Randall and I both were somewhat affiliated with Carson Branham who at the time was promoting Atomic Speedway, the one and only, the original and one and only Atomic Speedway, and this one there at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, just outside of Knoxville. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the only one I remember. Yeah. They can try to talk about a new or different Atomic. There won't never be another one like that one. No, you've got that correct. I think they've got KC Raceway confused or something with Atomic or something like that. Yeah. Well, Something you like obviously that. know the reason it's atomic because that's where they built yes, sir. the bomb from the Manhattan Project right there at Oak Ridge. Mm-hmm. Great American story. I've been up so, in the uh, mountains on a four-wheeler before, so I've been in that area a lot. Yeah. Now, uh, Carson was promoting Atomic Speedway, and somehow or another he got roped into helping – with the track prep at uh, Bristol. And Randall was right in that. Me and Randall went up there and 
you know, we did everything we could do to help out. And Carson was involved in that. And turned out to be a great racetrack. But, I mean, I remember the first hot lap session at Bristol when the cars went on the racetrack. I remember a left rear just snatching off of Dale McDowell's car. The centrifugal force was just so much, the cars couldn't handle it. It wasn't due to a rough racetrack or anything of that sort. It was just too fast, and the centrifugal force was just so much. Those cars couldn't take but so much. And like I said, McDowell actually lost the left rear because the centrifugal force was so great. But that was a great thing to do, and I was glad to see him do it again recently. But it won't be the same like it was with uh, the dirt late models there going for the first time or the sprint cars. Oh, my gosh. You're talking about fast. For sure. For sure they were. And then and then right around that same time, you you guys had the million. I feel like we're sort of at Eldor, of course. You know, I sort of feel like we're circling back around. The, I always felt like that was the – maybe the highest point of this sport that it was, that it had ever been at that time, you know, 2001 and 2002 and all that. And I sort of feel like we're maybe, uh, maybe going back up the, up to that same level, maybe even higher now, but it was all That's because of what you guys did back in those days to, to do all of that, to, uh, to, uh, to, that it's at this level today, I believe. Well, that's a good point that you make. And I kind of agree to some degrees because, even NASCAR these this year, I think, has had a resurgence. And I think a lot of the old-timers that disagreed with the new ways and new tracks and new rules, I think a lot of them have come back to the fold now after seeing the excitement that they've seen this year and the different changes. So it's back on the rise there, too. And that certainly filters down to the short track grassroots racing. I think there's a resurgence there. And having the million again, Gosh, I, I wanted to announce that race more than anything in the world. And I, you know, I got to tell you, I was pretty damn ticked off that I wasn't on the announce team for that. But I tried to keep my mouth shut and didn't wear Tony out or anybody else out. It was the people's that were broadcasting the decision. So I didn't want to say anything that I was going to regret later on. But I was flat pissed off about not being announced in that race. Yeah, that would have been a that would have been a neat deal that you, you know, do, doing the first one and then coming back. And that would have been a... That would have been a cool thing to do. Ozzy, I want to mention this, dude, while while you're on that. That was uh I was there in attendance at that race and 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 they did get you to do maybe some voiceover stuff for their videos and gentlemen start your engines and all that. And I'm gonna tell you what, Ozzy, I, I don't know how many people were there, but I know it affected me. Like I had I had goosebumps hearing your voice again on that deal, just from being around this as long as we have and uh I think everybody else there probably felt the same way as if they've been paying attention like we have. And that was a, that was really damn cool that they used your voice and all for that at that race that night. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. What you said means a lot to me and I hate to be on a downer or a negative, but yeah, I suffered a stroke, but the good Lord left me alive and I can still think and talk clearly so I'm I'm still capable of announcing a race with anybody. And I, I, a couple of weeks ago, I was ticked off pretty bad again because as much as I care about Atlanta Motor Speedway and as important as it's been to my life with the changes that Marcus and everybody made to the track to turn it into 
a true super speedway. Atlanta has always been one of my favorite racetracks. In the old days, I was at the first race at Atlanta Motor Speedway in 1960. Daddy took me there, and I saw Fireball put a whooping on him. And I was so looking forward to announcing that race. But there's a new management team in Atlanta Motor Speedway, and I just, for whatever reason, I don't think that they thought that I was capable of announcing their race. Well, they was freaking damn wrong about that. <laughs> I don't know if people think I just sit around here and drool on myself all day, but I'm capable of doing a lot of things. Ozzy, you sound fantastic. I mean, to go through a stroke and all that. And I haven't heard your voice or talked to you uh, since before all that. And I, mean, I know we've, you and I have hung out and, you know, a little extracurricular after the races and stuff like that and all. And we've always had a really good time. And uh, it's it's been this, it's, it's sucked not to get to see you at the racetrack for sure. But I'm going to tell you what, man, your voice is as golden as it's ever been oh, yeah. right now while we're talking to you on this, just to do this podcast. And I know a lot of people are going to really enjoy hearing you on here. And I hope, uh, hopefully, maybe it'll bring your name back to the top because you deserve to be there for sure. Well, maybe some old knucklehead will let me announce a race for him, you know. If I was going to have a race, you'd be uh, at you'd the top be the of my list. We, yeah, we'd call you first one. Thank you, brother. Yeah, we have had a, quite a few laughs that we shared with especially after a race around a campfire and there's a mason jar nearby. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's right. We call yeah, we, the we old, called, the old uh, Mabel story about old Mabel down at Daytona. If you've seen that, yeah, I still laugh my ass off about that. <laughs> that old boy got hit so damn hard. I thought he was dead. It, it, the st stories like that. It's like when, cause I remember when I was young, I mean, you were young at that time. And I remember one story when my dad first took me to the races it was the first big fight I ever saw at a racetrack. This this the old boy got turned coming off turn four. Of course, he loses the race. And next thing I know, the whole entire pits is on the front straightaway. Everybody's fighting. You got cops running back and forth. This guy starts to swing and hit a cop. And next thing you know, he gets maced and tased and all this stuff. But it's, it's stories like that that you just sit back and you know that that just brings you back that's that was where you started racing and then you'll never forget those yeah uh ozzy before we started this i, I was kind of was kind of playing phone tag or whatever trying to get you i said uh i said let me call one of ozzy's closest friends and just see if we can get him to share a story or something we can ask and and that was kyle strickler and i and i said kyle you got any good ozzy stories and he said man i i don't think i've got any radio friendly Aussie stories to tell you, <laughs> right? <That's> right. <laughs> uh, so he didn't tell us anything. No, so. he didn't. He didn't tell us nothing. He said, "No, we'll have to do that off air, <laughs> off the record, well, off the record." You know, when I give that boy a hard time, he's a good friend of mine. But you know, his hometown, Sinking, Sinking Springs. Springs. I always tell Strickler he's from Stinking Springs. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder he claims Mooresville. <laughs> Yeah, he's another one of my youngins, you know. Yeah, man, I don't know uh, if you got anything else you wanna wanna bring out uh, and announce or make a or say any or any more good stories or anything. But we've yeah, I got one more good one okay. I want to share with you. You talking about fights? Okay. I'm fighting with a door here. Let me get out this door and I'll tell you about a good fight story <laughs> at a racetrack. Hey, we'll take a quick break right here and we'll, uh, we'll more with Ozzy Altman on the Forward Bike Podcast coming up right after this break. 
We're back here on the Forward Bike Podcast with Ozzy Altman. Ozzy has shared some incredible stories with us tonight right here on the Andy's Towing Hotline. And uh, it's really been a pleasure to hear some of these stories. And I don't really think we've scratched the surface, but we've got time for maybe one or two more here. And we'll uh, we'll wrap it up. And Ozzy, it's, it's I, been, a, been I got our another honor. good one. I got another good one okay. about fighting at the races. And uh, some of my best times have been promoting races with some of my good friends. My old buddy Bill Webb from Pensacola, Florida, he and his wife Karen ran Tazewell Speedway for a while. And then we took a crack at promoting some races down uh, at Deep South Raceway in Loxley, Alabama, between Mobile and Pensacola, which was a pretty, had some potential there. We, Things just didn't work out in our favor in the long run for it, but we had some good times there with good races and good people and good crowds. But Bill wanted to meet with me and talk to him about coming down there and joining him at that place. So I said, okay. And so we'd had some business dealings up in Tennessee before. So, and I loved him like a brother. And I said, okay, where you want to meet? He said, how about the Bama Bash? You want to go there? I said, yeah, I'll meet you there. So I had been doing some work over there at uh, Green Valley Speedway for the promoter of uh, that track for a while in Gadsden, Alabama. And the Bama Bash was paying some pretty big money. And they had a full racing card for all their divisions with increased purses, great car counts. And this one particular Sunday afternoon, I mean, I had already seen some wild stuff there with the crowds because I had begun announcing there when I was still living in Woodstock area and, uh, I would drive over on Saturday nights back cut through past Rome and go on in Alabama. And my son Zeke would travel with me to those races. It was a short run and I could go announce the races and be back home before midnight. And, uh, Zeke and I had actually seen some of the craziest stuff you'd ever see. Well, they, they'd get so crazy at that place that they would throw center blocks over the race fence at cars on the racetrack. That's how crazy the fans would get there. <laughs> wow. Cinder blocks. And so, some of the things, yeah. Some of the things I've learned and seen about announcing is things that you do and don't do. I mean, I've had freaking people that I was working for, so-called promoters or racetrack owners, whatever, they'd go, get security to the main gate. Call security to the main gate. I said, Ain't you got a damn radio call security on your radio? Because if you got a fight going on at the main gate and you call, and you get your announcer to call security to the main gate, you're going to have 400 more people fighting because everybody's going <laughs> to want to run true. over there and see what's going on. You don't, you don't announce everything. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And I even remember back in the old days and people like Scott Blinkwitz would took the, took the brunt of some of this because Instead of using pit stewards and track workers to line up and stage the cars, some track owners would want their announcers to continually call for the cars to the staging lanes. And I heard fans actually say, see them prima donnas, they, they, don't, they, they make them beg to line up. They're begging them to line up. So I said, to hell with that. Get your pit stewards down there to line them up. I'm not refusing to do any work, but... You don't use your announcer to do stuff like that. You use your pit stores to do it. 
and you don't you don't use your announcer to call security for you. You do that on the radio. Just common sense, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. So we're at uh, Green Valley for the Bama Bash, and Kelly Carlton was there working as well. And Kelly and myself and a few other people had uh, agreed to help out the promoter of the Bama Bash that year in all the ways that they needed help, whether it was staging cars, officiating, announcing, whatever it took. Well, at some time in the afternoon, I had to get the feature cars ready to go out when it come time for their race. And I had to stage them in the infield, or I'm sorry, in the pits. The pits were behind turn three and four. But I had them staged in such a way that they didn't block traffic of cars, race cars from the cars that were racing on the track, whatever division, coming off the track into the pits and going back on. You know, I had to keep the late models lined up without blocking the ways in the pits. And I had them lined up in the scale shack there was kind of the focal point. And actually I had them lined up on the other side of the scale shack and I had two or three cars right up against the scale shack, kind of out of sight, but kind of hidden away. And I told those guys just sit there and I'd tell them when we'd move, they could roll out and rejoin their field and their position. Well, at some hobby stock race or something feature, these two old boys got into it. And like you said, next thing you know, there's a couple hundred people on the racetrack. <laughs> well, they was, there might've been a hundred on one side and another 150 on the other side. And they had jack handles oh and, and they was ready to kill one another. It was just a mob. <laughs> I mean, a riot. And one, one, they were jaw jacking and fixing it. One was fixing to kill another one. And there they are hollering. They finally got the racetrack cars off the track. So they carried the mob walking off the racetrack into the pits. And, uh, here they come. And I'm saying it's a couple hundred of them gathered up wanting to kill one another. And I said, okay, we got to break this up. So I had a radio and I was calling tower Tell them to get security over there right now. Get the cops over there right now. But I wasn't about to say it on the microphone. But uh, here they come. I mean, it is fixing to get real ugly. And I thought to myself, okay, you want to be a race official and jump up in there and say, okay, you guys break it up. Well, I wasn't going to be the test dummy, the first one to take an ass whipping. Because <laughs> anybody that walked up in there and tried to break them up would have been the first one to get knocked out. So I looked back behind me and I tapped old boy's hood and I said, crank it up. Let's go. And I, I said, just follow me. And I started walking that way and I had a couple of race cars behind me, you know, and amazingly the crazy mob, they wouldn't listen to anybody get out of the way. Wouldn't listen to security. But if a couple of race cars parted the seas, they'd move out of the way and cooperate. So I just kind of used the rumble of the race cars to kind of part the seas there and get all the hooligans out of the way. And my, I go back to my old buddy, Bill Webb, and he still hates me today for that. He says, Ozzy, you probably broke up what was fixing to be the greatest fight ever at a racetrack. <laughs> you thought you were, tell you, to the, you thought you were tell doing you something good. Day, he, we're great friends, but he'll tell you to this day that he hates me because of that in a joking way. But I miss, I miss announcing races. For sure. What are you uh, – so you – just 
it's just an everyday process. You're going up and down the road, going to that next race and stopping at truck stops and staying in different hotels all across the country and a lot of stories to tell about, I'm sure. Straight up highway to hell. <laughs> <laughs> what advice would you give any uh, upcoming announcer that would maybe be listening to this? Just tell the truth. <laughs> Don't yeah. exaggerate things. And, you know, I get frustrated watching a lot of these young kids. They grab a microphone and talk, start hollering to the crowd, make some noise, make some noise. Well, listen, hero, if you've got an entertaining show and you use your words properly, choose your words and use them properly at the right time, you won't have to beg nobody to be making a noise. They'll be making it already. But true. just don't exaggerate. Don't don't get carried away with too many nicknames and too many corny jokes. Just call it like you see it. Call it like it's happening because the people you're talking to are watching the same thing you're watching. Never try to convince the crowd that they're seeing something different than what they're actually seeing. Man, That's why I've always loved radio and live public address better than television because television, you were forced to talk about only what you see on the box. When you're commentating a television race or a television sporting event, you're only supposed to talk about what you're seeing on the box. And now I learned throughout the years as not only a, an announcer, but as a fan at an early age, people, te people tend to just watch the fir first couple of cars in the race. Well, meanwhile, back in 20th or 30th position, there may be a hell of a race going on. Oh, for sure. But on television, if you're not going to show it, you can't talk about it, you know? Yeah, that's what aggravates me about it. That's uh, I think we've I think I've said that on this podcast before. You watch these ra it's great. Don't get me wrong to have all these races streamed and be able to watch them all on TV. But man, there ain't nothing like being there because you can watch you can watch what you want to watch the comers and the goers. And just this past weekend, me and Adam here we went up to With mm -hmm. Raceway and Dale McDowell started back there in ninth. And he said, "Who you got? Who you got?" I said, I, "I'm gonna keep my eyes on McDowell." And methodically, right. he worked his way to the front, and I, don't, and I watched it on TV. And they didn't, they, they didn't show it. They're all of a sudden like, "Where'd McDowell come from?" Yep. So, yeah, it's it 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 is a different perspective to be there in person and see it. And uh, you know, I, I, uh, I think it's uh, I think I think it's cool to be able to watch all this stuff on TV. But you can't, you know, race fans will never get away from actually going to the racetrack, especially us hardcore people, for sure. Yeah, I mentioned and talked about before Jimmy Mosteller and how, yeah. how important he was to me, uh, not only in announcing, but in promoting races. But, you know, those people that come through the turnstiles and sit in them grandstands, they're your damn customers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you better make it entertain it for them and give them their money's worth. And that means you you better make it exciting. You don't exaggerate it. You call it like it is. But here's one perspective that, that I'll tell you that I had to learn years ago. One of my other mentors is Ken Squire, one of the greatest sports announcers ever. For sure. Of course, the voice of the Daytona 500 for years on CBS. And he not only mentored me in announcing, but in promoting races. Forever he owned Thunder Road up in uh, New Hampshire great racetrack but squires announcing was always spot on but he always reminded me 
never exaggerate it, call it like it is and make it exciting. But uh, Connor Mackey also taught me things years ago and go back to his days of heyday when the vast majority of racing was fairgrounds racing. And I've actually had to do this a couple of times at the Missouri State Fairgrounds in Sedalia is one place in particular. And, of course, up at the old Moody Mile in Syracuse, New York years ago. But the announcer was a barker, a, like a carnival barker, because people were in the fair. But if, if you wanted to get them, you wanted to get them to buy a ticket going into the race, which was at the fair, just because they were at the fair didn't mean they was – had a ticket to the races. You had to sell them a ticket to the race. So it was once they were inside the fairgrounds, the announcer's job was to encourage them to go ahead and buy a ticket to come on into the races themselves. And if you've ever read Economaki's book, Oh yeah. Let them all go by Dave Argerbright. He mentions one thing that he did back in the day. And it was like, Oh, somebody get that poor guy some help. That guy underneath that burning car that's upside down. And just say things like that, and the people would get excited, and he'd be selling tickets for him to come into the race. <laughs> have you, uh, Ozzy, have you been inducted into the National Dirt Lake Model Hall of Fame yet? Because if you haven't, I'm sitting here wondering why not. No, but I'm ready to go. I mean, I've got a lot of friends that are in it, and I've lobbied for a lot of my friends to be inducted years past. And I, it would be an honor for me. That would that really mean something to me to get that opportunity. I know you've worked close with them people a lot on the on the board and everything over the years, and uh, I was kind of sitting here going through the list. Like, I'm just thinking that you had to be on there somewhere, and I couldn't find your name. And if, uh, you know, the right people are listening to this, we'll, we'll see if we can't make that happen for next year because I'm telling you what, you – you're right there. You've done it all, and you, uh, you've your impact on this sport is is uh, greater than 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 you probably realize for sure. And I think uh, I think that it's time to uh, to have your name in there. Well, I, that would mean a lot to me. I would really appreciate any support and help that anybody can give as far as that goes, because that would be a certain honor to me. We'll, we'll see what we can do for we, sure. We know some people. <laughs> yeah, we'll. Uh, We'll make a few phone calls this week. But, yeah, man, I'm telling you what, Ozzy, this has been incredible to have you on our podcast tonight. And, and uh, you know, I don't think we scratched the surface, really, and maybe we can do this again sometime. And I know uh, Randall Chupp on here last week was a, was a good one. We got a lot of good feedback about that. And I know you and you and Randall are, uh, are pretty tight. So that was pretty cool to do that. And I feel like we're on a sort of an upswing with this podcast. And, once again, you're like a part of that, too. So, Man, man, I appreciate it. Yeah, man. I, well, yeah, one one thing we hadn't talked about is my <laughs> racing experiences. Yeah, let's hear it. Of course, Randall was there one night alongside of uh, he was at Millbridge one night. I was shaking down a cart. Really? Oh, I got to uh, hear this. We got to hear this we one. Well, it was a special go kart. It was an outlaw cart, and I was shaking it down. There was no drinking or alcohol or anything involved. I was straight as sober as a judge. <laughs> and I come out of the chute onto the racetrack wide open. And he said it was 20 minutes before I lifted. He said I never did lift. He said the only time it slowed down was when it hit the wall. 
but he said he was watching me, and I got wider and wider each lap. And I remember vividly that in turn two, I kind of glanced out of my peripheral, and I saw something glisten, and I knew it was moisture. I knew it was water on some leaves that were up against the wall. I was like, oh. And about that time, I went, oh. And then that's the last thing I remember. <laughs> I hit that wall so hard, it knocked me straight up in the air. Obviously, you know, there ain't no seatbelts and them things. And I, he said I landed like a dish rag. <laughs> My goodness. On the racetrack. And then the damn thing come back to life and tried to run over me like the, like the possessed car Christine in the movie. <laughs> Going to finish me off. But so was that your uh, your first and last racing experience? Uh, I hit the wall so hard it knocked any stupid out of me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, thank God there's an ABC store not far away. Randall says, "You okay?" I said, "No, I'm shook up." And he said, "Oh God!" And he told Tyler Burnett, you know, at Millbridge, mm-hmm. Jeremy, when they were running to get me, he told Tyler, "I said if he's dead." We're just going to pull him and the cart out on the highway and make it, and let a truck run over and make it look like he died that way. <laughs> That's how hard I hit. He thought I was dead right then. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Well, Ozzy, Ozzy, you're not dead. You're alive and well, and, and that's, uh, that's, uh, that's by God's grace, and we appreciate you, uh, totally appreciate you doing this tonight. And, uh, and I don't think you're done, nowhere near done yet. Your announcing career has still got some life left in it for sure, I hope. Thanks, brothers. Yes, sir. I'm ready to do it. I'm ready to go. Ozzy, well, man, I'm telling you what, we appreciate this. This has been good, and uh, we'll wrap this thing up, and uh, well, hopefully we'll see you soon, buddy, and uh, hope you uh, hope you stay well, buddy. Thank you, brothers. Maybe we'll find us a mason jar again soon. There uh, you go. I- I know where some of that's at. Yes, sir. Let's go. I do too. (laughs) All right. Well, folks, this is Kyle Armstrong here for Adam Logan and Ozzy Altman. Uh, Another episode of the Forward Bike Podcast is in the books for this week. We'll see you next time. Keep it green and don't spin out. (laughs) 